A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On March 3rd, 1699, after eluding justice for nearly two decades, con artist William Chaloner faced trial for the very first time. And though he'd outmaneuvered his prosecutor, Isaac Newton, before, this time, Newton was determined to put him behind bars. That morning, the gallery above London's Old Bailey Court was packed with spectators. Their murmurs filled the room as they stared down at Chaloner in the center of the floor. They were all there to see England's most infamous counterfeiter, but more specifically, to see him spar with Newton. As the proceeding wore on, the con man could do nothing but watch helplessly as his greatest criminal secrets were announced before a judge and jury. By the time the prosecution rested its case, it was already clear that he was doomed for the gallows. But William Chaloner had one final card to play. When asked to enter his plea, he simply said nothing. Instead, Chaloner stood silent before the jury, hands clasped and lips sealed. As the courtroom waited for his answer, seconds passed, then minutes. English law demanded a plea from the defendant in order to proceed, and with no attorney to act on his behalf, Chaloner had just brought the court to a complete standstill. Newton glared at Chaloner from his bench. Murmurs echoed across the chamber. But William Chaloner simply smiled, reveling in his ongoing game of cat and mouse. But his thrill would be short-lived. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we covered William Chaloner's path to becoming London's most prolific counterfeiter of the 17th century. We explored his narrow escapes from the law and how his attempts to defame and defraud the Royal Mint earned him an enemy and its warden, Isaac Newton. This week, we'll see Chaloner continue to slip through Newton's fingers until they finally go head to head in court. Both men were determined to emerge victorious, but Chaloner faced the ultimate penalty if he lost, the gallows. For more than a decade, William Chaloner had managed to evade the law, all the while forging tens of thousands of pounds worth of coins and banknotes, or millions of dollars today. But soon, he turned the tables on his scheme. Chaloner declared that he was an anti-fraud expert. In fact, he discovered that Britain's Royal Mint was riddled with corruption and counterfeiting its own currency. In 1694 and 1696, he twice accused the Royal Mint and its warden, Isaac Newton, of fraud. But once again, he was pulling a long con. Through his accusations, he hoped to earn the trust of the crown and secure himself a formal appointment at the Royal Mint. Once there, he'd continue his counterfeiting from the inside. According to authors Francis Cullen and Pamela Wilcox in their book, The Oxford Handbook of Criminological Theory, criminals often seek legitimate activities that present illegal opportunities, otherwise known as the inside job. But according to researcher Robert Smith of Aberdeen University, criminals also desire what Smith calls becoming other, meaning the front of respectability that comes with legitimate work. A common example of this is money laundering. Smith notes that many criminals take pride in running a seemingly legal business. It allows them to operate openly, engage with respectable figures, and enjoy the merits of being on the right side of the law. And for Chaloner, this was also an important element of his con with the Royal Mint. He wanted the veneer of prestige and respectability that would come with being an officer of the crown. For him, rubbing elbows with bureaucrats while robbing them blind was the ultimate thrill. So with this in mind, Chaloner launched his third attempt to discredit the Mint, and in the process, Isaac Newton. By 1697, Chaloner, then in his 40s, still had an ally on the inside, Charles Mordaunt, the former Lord of the Treasury. That February, Mordaunt arranged for Chaloner to speak before the House of Commons, and once again, Newton was forced to witness Chaloner discredit his work. Chaloner announced to the Room of Dignitaries that counterfeiting was occurring inside the walls of the Mint, 
and that precious die stamps used to press coins had been stolen and smuggled into the streets. As Chaloner paused for dramatic emphasis, murmurs and whispers were heard throughout the courtroom. When he was sure he had every dignitary's attention, he offered a solution. One man, Chaloner told them, could end the Mint's awful corruption. He proposed a new position, an officer who understood all aspects of melting, engraving, and metalwork, who could supervise the others. He was, of course, speaking of himself. Chaloner didn't wait for a response before he announced he had come up with a new technique that could make coins virtually impossible to counterfeit. It involved a machine of his own invention that could add a small groove to a coin's milled edges. This, he declared, would ensure that the coin could not be duplicated. To back up his claim, Chaloner then fished a coin from his pocket with the groove he'd just described. He even provided samples to be passed around the committee so they could all see for themselves. Chaloner assured them that even the Crown's own goldsmiths would tell them that they could not be copied. But unlike the rest of the room, Isaac Newton smelled a rat. Once Chaloner stepped off the floor, Newton presented to the committee. He countered Chaloner's arguments, fiercely defending the honor of the Royal Mint and his work there. But Chaloner had already impressed the room with his knowledge and skills, and so the committee made a final proposal. They invited Chaloner into the Royal Mint to demonstrate how he could adapt its machinery to thwart counterfeiting. The order shocked and galled Newton. He would not allow his arch-enemy, who he suspected to be a counterfeiter, inside his domain. Citing his oath as warden never to let outsiders see the mint's machinery, he told the committee it simply wouldn't be possible. Instead, he asked Chaloner to show him his methods. But Chaloner also refused. What he wanted was access to the mint, and he wasn't going to let Newton deny him his chance. Compromise after compromise was shot down, and in the end, Newton refused to let Chaloner inside the Royal Mint. And Chaloner refused to reveal his anti-fraud methods unless he could enter the Mint. The committee was at a standstill. And so, they simply called an end to the matter. Chaloner's long con had been foiled a third time, but he did manage to burnish his reputation. After the committee meeting, Parliament issued a final report on the affair, including glowing praise for Chaloner's anti-fraud efforts. But Newton felt otherwise. When he added his own testimony to the report, the warden crossed out passages and scribbled furiously in margins, complaining of Chaloner's slander. The conman had now earned Isaac Newton's singular hatred. To Newton, Chaloner's defamation of his work was no longer just business. It was personal. 
and this time, he was determined to put an end to it all, and to Chalala. That winter of 1697, Newton sent his agents and informers across London with one objective, to catch William Chaloner red-handed. But Newton's spies would come up empty-handed. By that time, Chaloner's counterfeiting business had been dormant for years. He hadn't forged a false coin since August of 1686. And with good reason. He didn't want to risk being exposed as a counterfeiter while attempting to convince Parliament that he was an anti-fraud expert. But after his latest attempt to breach the Royal Mint failed, Chaloner was rethinking his strategy. By 1697, he was nearly broke and in desperate need of an income. So Chaloner did what he did best. He made his own money. That March, Chaloner, now in his mid-40s, quickly went to the streets to gather what was left of his old gang. Soon enough, Thomas Holloway, his old accomplice, was back by his side, and a team of scammers and scoundrels was assembled. But Chaloner wasn't about to dive into counterfeiting willy-nilly. This time, he knew Newton would be waiting for him to slip up. Chaloner was going to have to take the entire operation underground. The first problem was visibility. Chaloner quickly realized that operating in London was a sure way to be ratted out. So Holloway found a house in the countryside where the noise of their forging and grinding would go undetected by neighbors and passers-by. The second issue was scrutiny of the fakes themselves. His next batch had to be so flawless that even a goldsmith of the Royal Mint wouldn't be able to identify it as counterfeit. So Chaloner hired a man by the name of John Piers to carefully file the face of each finished coin, rendering them more like the machine-stamped coins of the Mint. And finally, the third problem was informers. Chaloner had been a criminal long enough to know that no one, not even his compatriots, could be trusted. So he made sure to keep the accomplices in the operation from mingling. The coin filer didn't know the engraver, and the engraver didn't know the metal workers, and so on. In keeping each process in a separate location, Chaloner was able to limit the knowledge of his employees, meaning whatever testimony they gave to investigators would be next to useless. But Isaac Newton, wasn't just any investigator. Coming up, Newton builds a case against his nemesis. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. 
Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. After William Chaloner tried for a third time to infiltrate the Royal Mint, Warden Isaac Newton set his sights on exposing Chaloner for the fraud he was. He started looking for any opportunity to catch him red-handed. On May 18, 1697, when John Pierce found himself charged with an unrelated crime, Isaac Newton was able to seize the opportunity he'd been waiting for. When he brought Pierce in for questioning, the coin filer sang like a bird. He volunteered everything he knew about Chaloner's counterfeiting business. But just as Chaloner designed, he had little information to implicate him directly. However, Pierce did lead Newton to Thomas Holloway. Holloway had recently been jailed for a much smaller crime, unpaid debt. And so, with two of Chaloner's men in custody, Newton saw a strategy. He made John Pierce an informant and released him on the condition that he gathered evidence against Chaloner. Pierce visited Holloway in prison soon after and, through seemingly casual conversation, gathered a key piece of intel, the location of the country house. Pierce had never been to the house before, but when he showed up on a day when Chaloner was absent, he simply told the other gang members that Thomas Holloway had sent him to help. When Chaloner later learned Pierce had been to the country house, he was furious. But the damage was already done. Pierce had already reported back to Newton, and Newton could now link Holloway to Chaloner's counterfeiting house. So Newton charged the already imprisoned Holloway with coining and waited. A coining charge meant a possible death penalty, and Holloway was terrified. Serving time for unpaid debts was one thing, hanging was another. So soon enough, Holloway did just as Newton hoped. He talked. And just like that, Newton had all the evidence against Chaloner he needed. Finally, on September 4th, 1697, Newton had Chaloner arrested and sent to Newgate Prison. But even behind bars, Chaloner's confidence was hardly shaken. Finding physical evidence of his involvement with the coining operation would be nearly impossible. He'd made sure of it. Holloway, on the other hand, was his only threat, the only witness who could truly implicate him. Luckily for Chaloner, Newton had just released Holloway in exchange for his testimony. And as long as Holloway was on the streets of London, Chaloner still held some sway over his old partner. From inside his prison cell, Chaloner managed to deliver a bribe to Holloway to persuade him to flee to Scotland. Holloway knew better than to disagree. Chaloner had betrayed other men to the gallows before and would likely do the same to him. So he took the bribe on the condition that Chaloner provided additional money for his wife and children to join him. When Newton discovered that his key witness had vanished, 
his investigation into Chaloner was stalled. And for the next two months, Chaloner sat back and waited as Newton's case against him crumbled. Finally, in November of 1697, after seven weeks with no progress, Newton was forced to release Chaloner from prison. Isaac Newton, the great thinker, had once again been outwitted by a conman. But William Chaloner was far from satisfied. After nearly two months in prison, he was destitute. He paid the hefty cost of relocating Thomas Holloway's entire family to Scotland and lost his coining operation to boot. Chaloner barely had a penny to his name. Suddenly, he was back on the streets of London, broke and without a plan. That winter of 1697, Chaloner ruminated on the wrongs committed not by him, but against him. He cursed Isaac Newton's name and the injustice of his imprisonment. And the longer he thought about it, the more he believed he deserved restitution. According to a study conducted by Stanford University, individuals who feel wronged in the face of a negative outcome often demonstrate a general sense of entitlement. This outlook or belief that they deserve a positive outcome usually manifests in selfish behaviors, such as being less charitable or insisting on higher payment. But Chaloner didn't just want compensation for his troubles. He wanted revenge. On February 19, 1698, Chaloner petitioned Parliament for reparations. He claimed that his imprisonment for counterfeiting was punishment for his good-faith efforts to expose corruption at the Mint. His incarceration had ruined his health and cost him his legitimate livelihood, and he sought redress to make him whole. Though it was unspoken, it was evident that Chaloner wasn't accusing some faceless institution. He was blaming the man in charge, Isaac Newton. Or at least, this was clear to Newton. He drafted a scathing response to Chaloner's absurd request. In his letter, Newton highlighted Chaloner's past as a petty criminal. He proposed that perhaps if Chaloner had simply left the government alone and returned to his lowly roots as a Japaner, he would never have gone to prison in the first place. But his written protests weren't enough to dissuade Parliament. They began investigating Newton for framing a not-so-innocent man. As he testified against Newton before a panel of government officials, Chaloner bemoaned how he'd languished for months in shackles in a case so weak that a judge wouldn't present it to a jury. It was clear, he argued, that he was being punished for his accusations against the Mint, that his imprisonment was nothing more than Isaac Newton's retribution. After listening to Chaloner's sob story, the investigators convened to make their decision. Much to Chaloner's disappointment, they dismissed his claims. But they didn't entirely exonerate Newton. 
both men had lost. There would be no reparations for Chaloner's wrongful imprisonment, but Newton's reputation had been publicly damaged in the process. Chaloner was beside himself with frustration. Newton was furious that his name was sullied by Chaloner's bogus accusations, and both were determined to gain a final victory over the other. After the dismissed investigation, Newton returned to his responsibilities at the Mint with William Chaloner never far from his mind. Chaloner, meanwhile, was as poor as he was the day he walked out of Newgate Prison. He hadn't counterfeited a single coin in over a year, and his gang of conspirators had scattered to the wind. And so, friendless and broke, Chaloner took up a room over a pub near Covent Garden and started scheming. Because if there was one thing the con man did well, it was turning desperate times into personal gains. Soon, Chaloner saw his chance in the Malt Lottery, the government's failed attempt to raise money for the Crown through the issuing of lottery tickets. When the project crashed and burned, Parliament declared the remaining bills legal tender. They were treated as £10 banknotes and quickly passed into circulation. But where the Crown saw failure, William Chaloner saw gleaming opportunity. The lottery tickets, Chaloner realized, were ripe for counterfeiting. Unlike other paper money at the time, their small denomination, at just £10, meant anyone, rich or poor, would easily pass it into circulation. And the lower the value, the less scrutiny the bills would receive. It was a near-perfect con. Except for the fact that the lottery tickets were incredibly complicated to replicate. He couldn't do it alone. He recruited an old conspirator, one of the few that wasn't jailed, dead or furious with him, Thomas Carter. Carter found a third-party investor in David Davis, an already wealthy man interested in illegally increasing his fortune. And soon, an arrangement was formed. Davis would provide the funding for the operation. Chaloner and Carter would do the counterfeiting and all three men would split the profits. There was just one condition. Chaloner insisted on working anonymously. Davis was to never meet him or even know his name, and all communication would be done through Carter. Chaloner would remain faceless and mysterious. Though the arrangement was a bit dubious, Davis agreed. Thrilled to be back in business, Chaloner used Davis's startup funding and went directly to work. It took weeks for him to engrave both sides of a copper plate that would print exact duplicates of a single malt lottery ticket. But once it was perfected, they were finally ready to begin printing and distributing their false tickets as good as cash. For an entire summer, Chaloner and Carter printed tickets. It seemed to Chaloner like he was finally catching the lucky break he needed. But what he didn't know was that his current operation 
was a trap. Although Chaloner insisted that he remain anonymous to Davis, Carter had, accidentally, given him away. While striking the deal with Davis, Carter had boasted to him that his anonymous partner was as great a master as William Chaloner. But Davis easily put two and two together. This was bad news for Chaloner, as Davis was a paid government informant. He worked for Secretary of State James Vernon. Like Newton, Vernon had targeted England's rampant counterfeiters, but due to a classic case of miscommunication between parliamentary departments, neither Newton nor Vernon knew the other was investigating counterfeiting. The Crown was unwittingly pursuing two entirely separate probes into the same issue. So, with clear orders from Secretary Vernon to gather as much evidence as possible, David Davis bought the entire lot of Chaloner's forged tickets. Vernon was horrified by how good they were. Aside from all bearing the same numbers, these were perfect fakes. He realized that if they made it into circulation, it would seriously damage the value of England's currency. He had to eliminate them and their creators before they had a chance to go on the market. Meanwhile, Newton, entirely unaware of Vernon's case against his nemesis, was pursuing his own investigation. But after six months passed with no trace of Chaloner, Newton played the only card he had. He tracked down Thomas Holloway in Scotland and persuaded him to testify against Chaloner. But it was difficult to keep secrets among criminals. Information was just another commodity easily traded. It didn't take long for Chaloner to learn that Thomas Holloway was about to cooperate with Newton. That fall of 1698, he immediately shut down his malt ticket operation and went underground. Chaloner and the counterfeiting plate vanished. Neither Vernon nor Newton had any idea their investigations had crossed to the detriment of both. It was beginning to look like another promising case against William Chaloner was about to end in failure. Weeks passed into late October and Chaloner continued to lie low. Though the copper plate held enormous risk, he decided it was also too valuable to destroy. Instead, Chaloner hid it, along with his tools, and hoped for the best. Shortly after Chaloner disappeared, Secretary Vernon panicked. He was terrified that Chaloner and Carter would continue churning out fakes underground and flood London with false lottery tickets. So, Vernon offered a handsome public reward for Chaloner's apprehension. Just days after, in late 1698, he was brought in by a bounty hunter. And once again, Chaloner found himself behind bars at Newgate Prison. Newton got word of Chaloner's arrest almost immediately. He couldn't believe his luck. 
His nemesis had been locked up, and he didn't even have to do the dirty work. Soon, Newton convinced Secretary Vernon to let him take over the investigation into Chaloner and got to work building an ironclad case against him. And this time, he was determined to make sure that Chaloner stayed behind bars. Even while languishing in his dank prison cell, Chaloner's confidence was barely shaken. Without the hidden engraving plate, Chaloner knew that Newton would need a parade of convincing witnesses in order to convict him. But Newton was already 10 steps ahead. As soon as Chaloner entered Newgate, Newton placed a series of informants inside the prison to see what they could learn. At one point, three of Chaloner's cellmates were spies. One of these men was John Lawson, another counterfeiter who Newton had previously arrested. Lawson was more than ready to cooperate in return for leniency in his case. And Lawson was the perfect spy. As a fellow counterfeiter, Chaloner instantly sought him out for camaraderie, someone who he could brag to about his exploits. But more importantly, because the two counterfeiters had never worked together, he believed it was impossible for Lawson to betray him. He was a man Chaloner could trust with his secrets. Or so he thought. Coming up, William Chaloner unwittingly condemns himself and is forced to find a new way to evade prosecution. Now, back to the story. In late 1698, William Chaloner, now in his late 40s, found himself back at Newgate Prison. Chaloner was convinced that he'd slipped through the cracks again, just as he had so many times before. But this confidence was exactly what would condemn him. Newton's informant, John Lawson, went to work, gathering as much incriminating information about his cellmate as he could and it wasn't a difficult task. Chaloner had been lonely, deprived of camaraderie for too long. But in Lawson, he found the perfect friend and confidant. Lawson was non-threatening, friendly, and most importantly, a fellow counterfeiter, someone who could appreciate his genius. Chaloner bragged endlessly about his skills and trade secrets, and Lawson was the perfect audience. He nodded along agreeable and complimentary. But all the while, he was taking notes for Isaac Newton. According to sociologist Robert Smith, this kind of boastful ranting is common among criminals. In his research on modern British criminals, Smith observed that many of his subjects were charismatic storytellers and used storytelling in a way to present themselves as a success. Similarly, Boston University professor Laura Korobkin explains that these conversations are common among criminals both in the prison system and underworld, where they're used as a kind of social currency. She writes, to be privy to and be able to tell the stories is to belong. And this was exactly what Chaloner believed he was doing. By bragging about his successes and recounting his many close calls and clever escapes, 
He was hoping to build a rapport with Lawson. But instead, he was just giving Isaac Newton ammunition to use against him in court. Eventually, Chaloner shared with John Lawson the one thing he thought could damn him to the gallows, the thing he feared the most, the wives of men he'd worked with. Chaloner knew that two women in particular could condemn him to the gallows, Catherine Coffey and Elizabeth Holloway. Catherine was the wife of Chaloner's old partner, Patrick Coffey, who he'd betrayed to the authorities to save his own neck. And Elizabeth was the wife of Thomas Holloway, who he'd exiled along with his entire family to Scotland. Both women had a bone to pick with Chaloner, and both likely knew just as much about him as their husbands. Chaloner figured if either of them took the stand, he'd be good as dead. When Lawson passed this information along, Newton acted swiftly. He sought out both Catherine Coffey and Elizabeth Holloway, and both were more than happy to testify. In early 1699, after languishing behind bars for months, Chaloner began to panic. All he could think about was his upcoming trial. He did the unthinkable. He wrote Newton a letter. In it, he offered Newton a wealth of testimony against other colleagues for a variety of crimes. But, true to form, he continued to deny any criminal wrongdoing on his part. Instead, he claimed he was a bystander, caught up in the villainy of others. Chaloner also addressed the animosity that had grown between him and Newton and acknowledged how he had antagonized him with accusations of incompetence and corruption. But again, he blamed it on someone else, claiming he'd been forced to make his accusations to Parliament by some unnamed criminal. Chaloner hoped that opening a dialogue with Newton would allow him to talk his way out of prison. He prepared himself for every possible response, but Newton never replied. As weeks passed, with no word, Chaloner tried again. This time, he offered Newton details of a specific crime that he knew Newton had been interested in, hoping that the offering would warrant some sort of response. Again, Chaloner waited. And again, he received no reply. Panicking, Chaloner wrote to Newton twice more. In these letters, he declared himself too incompetent to coin even the simplest fake and barely capable of running errands for those who did. Chaloner was unraveling in his desperation. The once arrogant man had thrown his pride to the wind in the hope of saving his life. But once again, it was no use. Newton simply tossed his letters into the fire, no doubt enjoying his front-row seat to Chaloner's decline. Then, on March 2nd, 1699, Chaloner, now in his late 40s, found himself face-to-face -face with Newton in court once again. As Newton laid out his indictments to the Middlesex court, Chaloner was surprised to hear no mention of the malt lottery forgery. 
the crime that had landed him in prison. Instead, Newton had built a case against Chaloner's counterfeiting career as a whole. And it was effective. The Middlesex Grand Jury ruled to allow all indictments to proceed to trial. Chaloner's heart sank. But he had one more gambit. English law required a statement from the accused, a plea of guilty or not guilty. With all eyes on him, Chaloner was expected to plead not guilty. Newton would then make his case and Chaloner would rebut the accusations. Instead, Chaloner simply stood at the podium and said nothing. Without his reply, the proceedings came to a standstill. The court urged and prodded him, but he maintained his silence. But only temporarily. English law had recourse for this tactic. One of them was torture. And as Isaac Newton consulted quietly with the court about their course of action, Chaloner began to panic. After the years of animosity that had grown between him and Newton, he realized the scientist could very possibly want to see him suffer. Chaloner's heart began to pound in his chest. Then, finally, he gave in and pleaded not guilty. Even the gallows were preferable to torture. Chaloner's case began the very next day, March 3rd, at Old Bailey Court. Jury boxes on both sides held the citizens who decide his fate, while spectators filled twin balconies above. As he stood facing the judges, Chaloner steeled himself for whatever Newton had in store, but nothing could have prepared him for what he saw next. When the prosecution entered the court, Chaloner's blood ran cold. There, among Newton's witnesses, were the wives of the men he'd wronged, Catherine Coffey and Elizabeth Holloway. Chaloner listened as Newton and his witnesses navigated the past decade of his criminal career. Catherine and Elizabeth testified that they'd seen Chaloner's counterfeit coins and attested to his exceptional craftsmanship in the art of coining. Newton's witnesses provided an onslaught of testimony, burying Chaloner under an avalanche of counterfeiting charges spanning multiple years. Chaloner quickly realized that Newton wasn't going to prove his guilt for just one crime and risk losing. He was putting Chaloner on trial for his entire criminal career. It would be enough to hang him. When the prosecution finally rested, Chaloner was given the opportunity to speak. But without legal counsel or any witnesses of his own, this was no easy task. But Chaloner had one more trick up his sleeve. Throughout the testimony, Chaloner had noted the locations where witnesses alleged he'd committed his crimes. And all of them, he realized, had been in London. Chaloner challenged the judge and jury with a simple question. How could this court in Middlesex, with a Middlesex grand jury and now heard by Middlesex jurors, convict him of crimes that, 
even if true, occurred in London, outside its jurisdiction. It was a clever legal argument. Once again, Chaloner had found and exploited a loophole. But this time, the court refused to let him slip through it. The judges declared Chaloner's defense indifferent and gave the case to the jury. And Chaloner's heart sank. The jury convened and quickly returned. They found Chaloner guilty of high treason. And the judge's sentence was delivered just as swiftly. His booming words echoed throughout the courtroom. Death by hanging. As might be expected, Chaloner did not take his conviction well. According to his biographer, Guzman Redivivus, Chaloner declared from prison he had not justice done him and instead they had murdered him. Now truly desperate, Chaloner reached out to the only man who could save him. In one last letter to Isaac Newton, he begged to be rescued by the warden's merciful hands. Once again, Newton chose not to reply. In a final gesture, Chaloner arranged for the elusive malt lottery copper plate to be delivered to Newton at the Mint. Knowing full well he was beyond saving, it was perhaps an admission of guilt, or one final boast on his way to the gallows. It's impossible to know. Two days later, on March 22, 1699, Chaloner, not even 50 years old, prepared for his fate. Initially resisting the chaplain's entreaties to repent, he eventually relented and received the sacrament. Finally, he climbed the ladder and placed his head in the noose. Isaac Newton did not attend the execution of his rival. By year's end, Newton was promoted to Master of the Royal Mint, the only warden ever to move directly into that position. But the damage William Chaloner's coining had done to England's currency lingered long after his execution. Newton was determined to protect the crown from the crimes of other counterfeiters like him. Still, Isaac Newton would never encounter another criminal like William Chaloner again. For 400 years, he would continue to hold the title as England's most cunning and prolific forger. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on William Chaloner, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Newton and the Counterfeiter by Thomas Levinson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream ConArtis on Spotify, just open the app and type ConArtis in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. ConArtis was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ken Pisani, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>